Ahoy hoy, and welcome to the White Noise Podcast. I'm Dr. Mohan Dutt. And I'm Dr. John Barkham. Welcome back to episode two. Uh, and this is a special episode. We got uh, a, it's a, it's a double episode um, on nightmare disorders with a special guest speaker today will be Dr. Todd Favorite. And John, you want to tell us a little bit about him? Yeah. So Todd Favorite is uh, the director of the University of Michigan Psychological Clinic. He's a graduate with a master's of arts and PhD from Fielding Graduate University, Santa Barbara, California. And he's joining us today to discuss dream rescripting for nightmares. All right. Thanks, John. So <clears throat> again, the the purpose of this podcast is really to use uh, clinical experts and uh, ask them questions about their you know, areas of interest and their, their areas of expertise and to gain, um, better knowledge of in the field of sleep medicine, and hopefully to be able to use that information to become better practitioners. Um, this episode again is a little bit different than what we typically have been trying to do. Uh, it is a double episode. And the reason that came about is, um, we actually recorded this episode with Dr. Favorite and after listening to it, kind of realized it's a little bit abstract and, you know, we wanted to provide some background information on nightmares and kind of how clinicians would treat that in their, in their normal sleep clinic. And luckily John Alok and I had already recorded kind of a pilot episode just for fun, uh, talking about nightmares and, and sleep and medication and, and how to use medication to treat nightmares. And we, you know, we decided that, um, while the, you know, the audio quality might not be the greatest, but we thought that the content was still, you know, important enough to, to kind of add on. So the first episode of this podcast will actually be the pilot recording that John Alok and I did. And then the second recording or the second podcast will be the, the special, uh, episode with, with Dr. Favorite discussing dream rescripting therapy. And I do think that this is uh, pretty cool because, um, he's an expert at, at dream rescripting. And that's something that a lot of practitioners in sleep medicine might not get the opportunity to deal with. I know that I, you know, before listening to the episode, I didn't really know what it was or how it worked. So I think that it will provide some useful, useful information and uh, we hope that you enjoy. So thanks again. And if you have any questions, um, you can email us at www.questions. Sorry, there's no www and emails at questions at the white noise podcast.com and uh, check out the website for show notes and for other information. And the, the, the website is www.thewhitenoisepodcast.com. Hey, for any of our listeners that would just want to skip the chatter and the intro and the get to know you is at the beginning of each podcast, we're going to try to just, you can you just bump forward five to 10 minutes if you want at a time to get to the meat of the discussion um, and that's going to be pretty standard for all of our podcasts that we're going to get our interviewee comfortable with the uh, medium as, and then kind of get to know them and then get to the, get to the point of the podcast. So we'll try to put a timestamp in there for each one of these podcasts. So you can cut to the, the meat of the show uh, when you want to skip. Do you recommend the listeners do that? Cause you know, that's my, my favorite part of the episode is, is getting to know, getting to know the expert. I, I, some people just want the meat and some people want to know more about the listener and where they're coming from. You and may or may not be a, a good person if you do that, but we understand, <laughs> we understand that you guys are busy and you're all, you know, you're practitioners and you, you might not have an extra five, 10 minutes. So, uh, again, as John said, we'll, we'll try to include that timestamp in there, uh, either in the show notes, uh, that you can see on, uh, on your 
uh, application of, of choice or um, we will, I think we're going to try to do markers. You can actually just press a button and it'll jump to that, that time point. Thank you very much. Hope you guys enjoy. That sounds good. Uh, Dr. Barkham, uh, who will be joining us shortly, uh, is a uh, uh, clinical instructor at the Ann Arbor VA hospital um, and treats uh, primarily veterans in his practice. He uh, is a graduate of the Michigan State University Medical School and then studied uh, and trained. <laughs> if you can't beat him, join him. Right? <laughs> uh, trained in internal medicine at Dartmouth University, where he also completed his sleep fellowship. And I believe he just walked in soon enough to hear uh, Dr. Dutz Boo of Michigan yes, State. Yes, I did. Uh, well, boo, welcome, boo, Dr. Boo, Barker. All things Michigan State. Yeah, but, but now I'm a Wolverine. So, you know, like uh, I can... Uh, and root for both teams, you know. So <laughs> house, a house divided, as they say. Um, so, John, welcome to welcome to the Sleep Medicine or the the White Noise Podcast. Uh, we are Thank thrilled you. to have you on. Um, before we get started, what we you know what we do is uh, we kind of take a couple minutes to to introduce uh, our, our speaker, get to know them. Um, so, first thing I want to ask you is uh, give us a one liner about yourself and kind of what do you like to do outside of outside of medicine? Um, well, I uh, have a family and a wife with a career in medicine as well. And so it keeps me pretty busy keeping everybody happy and uh, then taking care of myself. So, um, and my parents have a farm. I help out there once in a while, but for the most part, it's uh, business and taking care of the family. All right. All right. Uh, now, um Let's get to know you a little bit more. Okay, that Tell sounds me, good. Uh, <laughs> Some of you guys kind of know me. Yeah. When we're training in internal yeah. medicine and neurology, in my yeah. case, whatever it may be, um, there's always a few people that inspire us in terms of mentors, this kind of thing. And maybe it's a patient, maybe it's a colleague, a peer. Um, along the way, we get various bits of advice and and that kind of thing. What is a piece of advice you received in training that sticks out to you as important and influential? Well, residency was tough as it was for everybody, but I guess the best advice I got during that time was, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't stand when you can sit and, uh, don't, if you can lay down, sleep, if you can eat when you can, you know, use the bathroom when you can. I mean, it was one of those time management things because you're so busy. Um, but going forward after that, um, it's, it's really more of been charity starts at home of self-care and taking care of yourself so you can be healthy enough to take care of others because I see a lot of burnout in the field of medicine that uh, impairs a physician's ability to reach out to patients and uh, take good care of them. So, mm -hmm. Kind of on that, what do you like to do to avoid physician burnout here in, in sleep medicine? Mm. Well, uh, obviously getting a good amount of sleep uh, is <laughs> – cornerstone so you can recover from a physical or mentally stressful day. But I also, um, I'm very physically active. I typically run five miles a day, no matter what. And, um, and I have a very strict diet. So I try to take practice what I preach with patients, mm -hmm. you know, so you're the guy that I saw outside in the negative 30 degree rather running this morning, then, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, a, in a tank top and short. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. crazy. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it's, it, that's what I do. And it, 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 it avoids the burnout that we all face at times. So, um, this is our, our, our random topic. So we like to pick of the month. So what is one 
book, movie, TV show that you recently saw or read uh, that you enjoyed? I have a recommendation <laughs> and, and why and why you liked it. Uh, I'm struggling through Jordan Peterson's um, Maps of Meaning. It's uh, it's huh. a, it's a slow read for me, but before that was Twelve Rules for Life, uh, which was a great book. Mm-hmm. So I could recommend either one. What's of them. that about? Uh, Twelve Rules for Life is just these. Uh, he he's a I think believe clinical psychologist out of the University of Toronto, mm-hmm. and uh, he. Uh, it's it's more of a general overview of like cornerstone principles for success, and um, I think it's very helpful. It's I think it's been the number one selling book in the world for the last year. So hmm. it's a good book. Definitely recommend it. Maps of Meaning is a little more tricky. <laughs> what, what do you got for us this month? I have been reading uh, The Big Fella by Jane Levy. It's a biography of Babe Ruth. Um, excellent uh, book, very well written and. I'll share an interesting anecdote. So Babe Ruth, obviously very storied, uh, highly photographed, very well-known figure. Um, Incredible career that corresponded with important events in American history. When he was diagnosed with nasopharyngeal carcinoma in the uh, mid-40s, I think, uh, his health declined significantly after that. Um, During that process of decline, um, he also, with the help of others, um, wrote a book. I believe it was a uh, an autobiography of sorts. And he went in either 47 or 48, he went to Yale University to dedicate a copy to the library there. And um, one of the people that was there to meet him was the captain of the Yale baseball team, <clears throat> who was George H.W. Bush, ah, future president. That's pretty cool. And he, crossing of paths. Yeah. Anyway, Jane Levy, very good book. And my pick uh, is going to be Star Trek Discovery. Have you guys seen this? It is very the, good the, stuff. the new Star Trek show yeah. on CBS All Access. Yeah. Second season just started, so my wife and I uh, uh, are rewatching the first season. Um, but it's really good. It's like a grittier Star Trek. And. Um, is this the precursor to the Captain Kirk? Yeah, I... so it takes place in between um, the new or the original series and the next generation. Oh, cool. Okay. And it's separate from the J.J. Abrams rebooted alternate timeline. Uh, as I said before, I'm a, I'm a total nerd. So. <laughs> well, you're in good company. Yeah, right? so <laughs> um, it's, it's good. Uh, the acting's good. It's got Sonequa Green-Martin from uh, The Walking Dead. So she's she's pretty awesome. You're being paid for this uh-huh. pilot insert, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> CVS is paying me money. So, <laughs> all right. Um, but check it out if you get a chance. See um, the fine print in the disclosures later. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's get going with the uh, with the actual interview. That sounds good. Should we start with a case? I think we should. Alok, you got uh, a case to give us for today? I do. Um, This case, um, I think, illustrates a lot of different things about uh, the treatment of nightmare disorder. Um, And we should note uh, this is uh, not an actual literal case from our practice. And 
Um, all patient information will be protected. Um, and again, see disclaimer at end of show. So uh, uh, an obese 57-year-old woman, history of anxiety disorder, obstructive sleep apnea on CPAP, hypertension, diabetes, and coronary artery disease. <laughs> Sounds like a medicine special. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Develops uh, very frequent disturbing <laughs> dreams that occur at, you know, at least four times a week. Uh, wake her up from sleep, fragment her sleep, uh, decrease sleep quality. Um, this patient does not have a trauma history. Um, and the nightmares don't have a specific recurring content, but they, they are frightening, disturbing, often involve threat of harm to self. Um, they have caused social and occupational dysfunction, and in particular, in her job as a call center a worker at a call center for an energy company, she's uh, uh, been written up for being hostile to customers three or four times in the last few weeks. Um, and uh, she's here to get some answers about, you know, what might be the cause, uh, how can she get some relief, uh, get her sleep to the her prior higher quality. Um, in terms of possible causes for this, it, when it started about three to four months ago, she had recently started sleep at, uh, CPAP for her sleep apnea. She also, not long before that, had been started on Carvedilol. Um, and in the prior month, uh, in the setting of a recent work stressor, her paroxetine was switched to sertraline. Um, so she's not sure which, if any of these things are contributing to or causing her nightmares, but... She's concerned that they may be associated with her nightmares because they previously weren't so problematic. Um, I think it's a good start. Yeah. yeah. So, John, what do you do? <clears throat> how would you, you know, how do you approach, you know, someone if someone came into your clinic like this? Uh, what, you know, where do you start? And, you know. Well, the first step is always to make sure the sleep apnea. For me, I try to make sure the sleep apnea is treated because uh, the REM. The rapid eye movement sleep fragmentation from untreated sleep apnea can worsen nightmares. What's odd about her case is that the CPAP, and I don't know what her compliance is, seems to have, there's an association here of the timing of the CPAP along with some medication changes. Mm -hmm. You never know. Was it the medication change that caused the nightmares? Because because some medications can cause nightmares. Mm -hmm. Or if it's the... Um, the CPAP, I have seen cases where once you consolidate people on CPAP and their REMs consolidated, and because you dream mostly in rapid eye movement, mm -hmm. um, people then have nightmares. That's more uncommon. Mm -hmm. uh, usually nightmares are mildly improved by CPAP compliance. There's a study on this years, a few years ago that showed that you get a mild improvement. But in clinical practice, if you start with a nightmare, a severe nightmare disorder, I only see a very mild improvement on the CPAP, and I end up having to quite often treat that. Mm. So it is possible that, it, less often, but it is possible that the REM consolidation on the CPAP, if she's compliant, could be uh, causing the nightmares, mm. especially if there's no trauma history and never had any. That's odd to suddenly have uh, some issues, you know, in, in her age. Do you, does, does Coreg cause, is that, is that linked to nightmares at all, carbidolol? Beta blockers are. Um, what's interesting about them is they decrease REM sleep, but they can provoke nightmares. And insomnia. Um, and insomnia. Um, this patient, uh, when you look at her download, her CPAP is effectively treating her sleep apnea. 
However, because of her nightmares, in large part, her average duration of use is now about between three and four hours per night. And she's getting progressively sleepier because of this. Um, what else? Uh, so she felt better off the CPAP before the... She, she noticed it helped her sleep apnea, but the nightmares may have correlated to her starting to use mm-hmm. CPAP. So it sounds like her sleep apnea is treated, but yeah. she's getting worse sleep. Yeah. Right. Is there any history of, you know, suffocation or anything like that? that claustrophobia. Could be claustrophobia or anything? Because that's um, <clears throat> like maybe could also be trigger. That the She hasn't noted major problems with the mask, you mean? Mm-hmm. She hasn't had major problems with the mask. She does have a history of nightmares in childhood, mm-hmm. but then she had a symptom decrease in symptom severity to the point where it was not an issue. Um, but then three to four months ago, the frequency increased quite a bit. I do have patients occasionally complain of um, panic attacks at night when they wake up the mask on, and it can be difficult to distinguish if these are for them to describe them as nightmares versus panic attacks or claustrophobia mm-hmm. as they get into REM and maybe they're on their back and they need higher pressures. How, Which, how do you approach that in terms of differentiating those entities using, for example, dream recall? Um, if a patient, and I don't know if you've ever had an, an instance like this, patient may report a dream of drowning. Mm-hmm. But it could just be due to CPAP, due to the mask, due to sleep apnea. Yeah, right. Um, that happens. Uh, people, I, I don't, it, it's challenging because it changes case to case. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it helps if you know if they've been formally titrated so you know you have the proper pressures uh-huh. to start with. A lot of the cases we're running into now are people on auto CPAP, right, yeah. because of <clears throat> home sleep testing and so you don't really know if you're at the right pressures always. I always worry that they get into on their back, they need more pressure, then they get into REM, consolidate at the end of the night after four hours, like this lady's talking about, mm-hmm. and whether the machine's not responding fast enough for the pressure demands, mm-hmm. they get some claustrophobia. It's in, they have a sleep, they have an apnea or hypopnea. There's a bradycardia followed mm-hmm. by the tachycardia, the arousal response, and they wake up with the adrenaline surge from an apneic event. Mm-hmm. I can't, it's very difficult to distinguish that clinically what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I do, if I don't know, and I've got someone like this who's presenting with nightmares or terminal insomnia, Mm -hmm. I'm happy to go do a titration study to take that factor off the table and then start going down and maybe talking to the psych, in this case, talking to the psychiatrist, see why they changed it, what's going on with that. And then, you know, I don't think you're, she's got coronary artery disease. I don't think you're going to get around having her on a beta blocker. But could you know you don't have to go to as far as I know I don't know what the structure of her heart is but can we use a different beta blocker they're not all the same right so so what you're so what you're saying is that inadequately treated sleep apnea <clears throat> may have may facilitate or may precipitate more nightmares than even not like not being on yeah. CPAP so being on inadequate therapy might be worse I mean, in machine. terms of nightmares than being on no therapy at all. Yeah. Just because you're getting some benefit of maybe some increased REM consolidation, but then when you're in REM, you're having yeah. more events and then those are causing you to wake up some more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, never, typically, it's ra- typically, it's rare for me to see right. CPAP-induced nightmares, but I have seen it. Gotcha. So I've mm-hmm. been doing this at the VA almost, I lost track 
seven, eight years now. And so, you know, I have seen it a few times and then I've had to treat it. But the problem with her history is that there could be a half dozen reasons that she's waking up and and patients struggle to articulate nightmares from panic attack, claustrophobia, mm-hmm. pressure intolerance, pressure mm-hmm. inadequacy. We all know that what they say and then you question them a little more, it could be all over the map. So, mm-hmm. and especially in cases of what I, you know, terminal insomnia at the end of the night, it becomes either more important to titrate or if they won't come in for a titration, try a little bump in the pressure to see. Because mm-hmm. one of the other problems with the auto titrating CPAPs is that as I brought more people in for titrations, they, they're very good at recognizing, the auto titrating algorithms appear to be very good at t- uh, finding apneas, but mm-hmm. very poor at detecting residual snoring and hypopneas, which mm-hmm. are more subtle. And in women, we know that they're more subtle. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have as much frank apnea. So it really, it's, it, this is a challenging case because, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of moving pieces here. And taking that off the table would be part of my first step of yeah. confirming we've got the right pressure for her. Yep. So let's say we've taken the CBAP. So she's on the right pressure. Yeah, yeah. Sleep apnea is well treated. Where do you go? Where do you go next? And you, you, you talked about, mm-hmm. in general, uh, nightmares being difficult to distinguish between anxiety and claustrophobia. Is that one of the things that you feel make, feels makes them so difficult to treat? You know, or what? Well, I mean, people that have had a lot, her case is a short term thing, right? right. So mm-hmm. you're, there's a lot of moving pieces here. But mm-hmm. with my patient population, usually the nightmares have been there for years to decades. Mm-hmm. It's not an acute thing. Mm-hmm. And so they, they kind of know the score. And so that's where they become difficult because, well, actually a little less difficult because we're already in agreement that these are nightmares. Can we, before you, before you go any further, can you talk specifically about your patient population and what makes it unique? Well, I mean, uh, the veteran population is already sicker and poor and socioeconomically disadvantaged compared to the private sector for most private sector. Um, And, uh, so, so they're unique in that aspect. It's predominantly male. Uh, in my clinic, I probably see 95% men. And um, and uh, I'd say about 30% of them have, um, or about 50% of them have nightmares. I'm sorry, PTSD. Mm-hmm. Been diagnosed from with PTSD, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have nightmares. Mm-hmm. And then about 30% of the patients I see have nightmares. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the women I see have military sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's that's that population. The majority of patients I see, uh, 90%, 95% have comorbid obstructive sleep apnea. So it's quite often I see nightmares with sleep apnea and PTSD, Mm. less often that I see just totally isolated nightmares, and um, even less frequently that I just have someone in there purely for only nightmares. Mm. It's usually uh, they've got other other forms of insomnia involved. The... um Epidemiologic studies on uh, nightmares and PTSD, p- patients with PTSD uh, reveal it could be up to 80% of those patients that have uh, PTSD patients that have nightmares. Mm-hmm. Is that um, is that prevalence borne out uh, in your clinic population in terms of when you screen for nightmares in a patient with PTSD? That, is it a very high rate of those people? that? Uh, if I look at the people with PTSD, yeah. I think we're in that range um, because <clears throat> I think I said 30% of my population have nightmares yeah. and uh, about half my patient have PTSD. So we're, we're so what, 60% of my PTSD? Yeah. But, you know, I haven't done the hard math on that, but yeah. it's quite prevalent. I mean... 
the other thing is the VA has strict criteria about PTSD and it's, you know, things changed over the years with all the new criteria is that mm-hmm. um, what I used to consider in the private sector, you know, as PTSD, they may not consider as PTSD and the patients get pretty angry about that because mm-hmm. they strongly feel that they have PTSD and the VA denies them sometimes, not, not always, but sometimes. And so mm-hmm. that's a, they got the nightmares, but not the PTSD service connection, mm-hmm. which is, seems strange to me. Mm-hmm. So, I, I'm not familiar with their exact criteria anymore for the PTSD. When I get people in front of me, it's pretty well established they've had nightmares. Um, and then I uh, we get into that and, and how to best treat that. And it's, a, you know, it's case by case, but. Do you feel like, or I guess, you know, the PTSD, do you, do you feel like they respond differently to Therapy for nightmares, I guess. Or do you, yeah. Are their nightmares different than someone who has nightmares for, for a different reason, you know, mm-hmm. or a non-PTSD patient? And is that why, you know, the data showing, you know, the data that came out for Prazosin really works in the PTSD population, and maybe there's not so much success in the non-PTSD population? Is there any anything to that? There might be. I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I have... I get so many nightmares that are PTSD associated or traumatically associated yeah. or mm-hmm. uh, it's rare that I get idiopathic nightmares, gotcha. but I do get them mm-hmm. and I treat them very similarly depending on the context because um, I use a lot of Prazosin. I mean, mm-hmm. let's be honest. That's what we're getting at here is that uh, that's been the hammer over the years, whether the evidence is more recently arguing against it, uh, but it's been effective on a case-to-case basis. And and I can tell you kind of how that evolved, but um, I the problem with the, the nightmares of the private sector, I think it's like 4% of the population. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly. Is that a and and yeah. I almost, you know. Adults. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's not that common. And then I feel like the sleep doctors in the private sector have when you don't see it that often, and if you're not screening for it, then you're not going to treat it that often. And then your skill of treating it is you just don't have the experience. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I'm hoping with this podcast is to actually help private practitioners assess and address this issue because it's so easy. It's so easy to treat um, this condition and people really do improve when you treat it. And, uh, oh. and, and, because the primary treatment is prazosin, and mm-hmm. it's a good antihypertensive. It's a good medication. If you, uh, I think off-label use for prostate obstruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of these people that I treat are older gentlemen with both those problems. So it becomes either two birds, one stone, or three birds, one stone. And they love that because no one has ever told these guys that they could get rid of their nightmares. They just assumed that they had to live with them. And so... It, you know, when you tell them that we can probably improve them or cure them in some cases and even get a two-for-one deal on their medications, mm-hmm. they're like, tell me and more. it helps my bladder? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I won't, and I won't pee so much? Yeah. Score. <laughs> but it is delicate to approach this um, with your bedside manner because um, you have to, you know, these guys have been handled typically before right. by... Yeah other people who have failed. And so you have to build some trust first and talk about it a lot. And uh, oftentimes these are not just purely functional men. These are, you know, they've been, they've been broke Mm -hmm. and they have uh, reservations about trusting uh, people. So you have to be careful. You have to explain it. Mm. And, and I take it actually quite slow. 
how I do it nowadays. So compared to what uh, some of these clinical trials have, have done and they've got their method, but I've got mine. And uh, so we can talk about that if you like. But. Yeah, I think that would be. So let's take, I don't know what, we didn't give our patient a name. Miss, Sorry. Miss Jones. Miss Sleepy Jones. Miss <laughs> um, <laughs> Sleepy Jones, you know, again, she so she comes to your clinic yeah. uh, with, with, you know, the case that Alok presented. Yeah. And I guess, how would you approach her? Sure. Do you want to review the diagnostic criteria real quick? Yeah, why don't we? Let's do a brief interlude diagnostic criteria for nightmare disorder. International Classification of Sleep Disorders from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, third edition. So diagnostic criteria A through C must be met. A, repeated occurrences of extended, extremely dysphoric, and well-remembered dreams that usually involve threats to survival, security, or physical integrity. B, on awakening from the dysphoric dreams, the person rapidly becomes oriented and alert. And the last criteria... The dream experience or sleep disturbance produced by awakening from it causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning, and then a number of different possibilities are listed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, given those criteria, what are your thoughts on those criteria? Uh, do you think that they capture most people with nightmare disorder? Do you rely on them in your clinical practice to any extent? Or So... Do they capture? Yeah. Do I rely on them? No, uh, because uh, I couldn't have I couldn't have verbatim told you that criteria, even though I've been diagnosed with nightmares. I mean, the problem with the DSM, it, it, it's like it, it's like reading a lawyer's textbook, you know. And you know, if someone comes into me and they're like complaining of nightmares, that's their problem. Yeah, that's their chief complaint. Mm. I feel like I'm obligated to talk to them about that, whether that's going to fit the strict definition in the D. Was it the ICSD? ICSD. Yeah. yeah, I think it's more than half the weeks, or or more than. Yeah, I mean, whatever. So yeah. it it's important. I'm not saying that's not sure important. I'm just saying I clinically use it less often to like sift through the the needles in the haystack. Mm -hmm. um, what what I have been um, using well. We can talk about it later, but yeah, so I don't really use it that much. Mm -hmm. All right. Which is probably not what people want to hear, but. Well, I mean, that's what we're, and I, you know, part of, part of the reason we're doing this is to really see how yeah. people that focus on, on topics of actually handle it. Cause there is, mm -hmm. if we go by strictly these guidelines and we're maybe missing out on some people. Right. Um, and so it's really to get at well, I'll tell how you it's what, generally, yeah. you know. I'll tell you how, it, how, how things evolved is that, you know, with my initial consultation years ago, I'd say we'd ask about parasomnia, sleepwalking, talking, restless legs, et cetera, et cetera, nightmares, right? right. And we'd, we'd ask them these questions almost like a review of systems mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, yeah. do you have any of these things? Well, most of the people were there for snoring and they didn't really want, most of them also don't want to talk about their nightmares either, right? These These are people that have seen awful things. They would rather not talk about it, right? And so a lot of times, you know, I was getting maybe nightmare disorder in my practice 10% of the time. And so I started treating it, you know, in those 10% of cases, and it became very difficult and squirrely to treat because they would come in, they'd be like, the veterans can be very nonspecific. They'd be like, yeah, I had a couple nightmares. A couple what? Like in a week, a month? You know, yeah. well, you know, when I have a couple beers, well, when is that, you know, or... And, and so it became very difficult to objectify what I was treating. In a few cases, 
after I was treating it, I found that the guy didn't even have nightmares, you know, like he, he was just misremembering or something, you know. Mm. And and so, you know, you have a few of those frustrating cases where you feel like you've wasted your time and their time. And then you, I switched over. I, I, I started digging for some sort of screening measure, which there aren't many. But I found this uh, Disturbing Dreams Nightmare Severity Index a few years ago. And it was a quick... Where was this developed again? Was this in... Uh, I got the study in my stack of papers here. <laughs> it's over a decade old, and it's not often used, but we'll, I believe we'll, it was... We'll, we'll link it uh, on, the, on the thing, yeah, so you it, guys can take a look I at it. I believe it was <laughs> used in a... Um, uh, it was compared to, like, it was validated with journal entries of nightmares. But, huh. you know, like, it's, it's, it's straightforward. It's quick. Anybody can answer it. It's, what, one, two, three, four, five questions, and you get a score. And you use this to identify people with a, who have a nightmare problem yeah. that are otherwise reticent about their experience. Well, I use it for a couple ways. Yeah. So, yes, I do use it for screening yeah. because some, there'll be a mismatch there yeah. to kind of flag people. Quickly, And then I also use it to uh, guide therapy because I need something objective to understand if things are getting better or worse uh, in patients as I um, address these issues. Mm -hmm. Is this part of your routine? Is this your routine patient packet? Yes, it is. Initial visit. And I guess on follow up too. Yep. It's routine for me because when you've got a 30 percent. When you're 30 percent of it is is nightmares or our nightmares coming through, then. It's been helpful because you'll get patients that are non-compliant and then, you know, and then you're like, oh, well, your nightmares are, they may not tell you about them, but they're, when they screen here, it's a score over 10, double digits, mm-hmm. you know, it's what, I think it's out of 37. <coughs> so 10 to 20 is mild in my opinion. Gotcha. There's mm-hmm. no grading scale on this. I, I just, in my experience, I, you know. Was 20, it validated or was a score number validated or you, have you just said, okay, Double digits is bad. And- for me, yeah, it's been. I don't remember who was how far they validated it, but you know, I've been using it for five years now, and mm-hmm. it's if you're over ten, we talk about it. If uh-huh. you're twenty or twenty or even over thirty, we're talking moderate to severe. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're over thirty, you're clearly severe on yeah. this. It's. I want to ask more about that, um, but let's circle back to Sleepy Jones real quick. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's say her disturbing dreams nightmare severity index score is thirty-two. Okay. Yeah. Um, severe. In my opinion. Exactly. If you're having that. Do you, what do you offer this patient? Uh, Do you go to a switch in her medications first? Do you go to therapy as a first line? Or do you. It's complex because, you know, depending on her relationship with psychiatry. Right. If they've got a good relationship with psychiatry and my psychiatrist knows what they're doing, Mm -hmm. which I don't know in the private sector how that how that is, because I don't see it often used in the private sector, mm. um, then I'll, I'll let them run the show. I'll suggest Prazosin and let them run the show, maybe, mm-hmm. if they don't think it's from the switch of the SSRI that he has or she has, and if it's if we don't think it's due to the beta blocker. Those are some things that could mm-hmm. be maybe better med- medically managed before we talk about putting someone potentially on a medication, another medication they may be on for a very long time, mm-hmm. if not indefinitely. Because mm-hmm. it's very safe, but it's just another thing in the cocktail. Yeah. So you would consider Prazosin for her? Well, yeah, it's always, it's always, a, it's always, I mean, that's been my hammer. Mm-hmm. Do you but, use the, do you use the scale score to determine like yeah. 10 to 20, no medicine, 20 and higher medicine, or mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. you know, is that, well, is that talking, what you're using this? Well, you know? here, the problem here is that this is an acute case. Right. 
Right. So what I do for chronic cases, yes, uh, that changes the discussion. So not to confuse the listeners, an acute case, try to fix any possible acute problems. Mm -hmm. But we get with her, it's not the beta blocker, it's yeah. not the uh, SSRI CPAP. switch, yeah. it's not the CPAP, yeah. we found the right pressure. Yeah. Okay, these are dragging on for months at a time, and it's then you got to start thinking maybe it's time to try some prazosin yeah. because uh, you can you can improve that CPAP compliance and uh, probably and if you treat the nightmares so so yeah it does it does change if they've got mild nightmares we can you know their pressure to treat them changes as the severity so when right. they the, one of these questions is how severe are you affected by your nightmares if they're saying if they're even if Here's the problem with this screening measure, mm -hmm. is people have a nightmare one time a week sometimes, yeah, and it's extremely severe. Mm -hmm. It wrecks them for the next day, they have flashbacks, they're all worked up about it. Mm -hmm. Well, that severely affects them. So the scale may come out as like, you know, a nine, Yeah, but they wanna treat it, right? So that's where you, you know, that's where you, this is why you have the scale and that's why you have a relationship with your patients who can talk about these issues. And then if they want to treat it, that's fine. So I'll I'll use the prazosin in those cases. Um, other cases that are unique that I treat are people who have episodic nightmares, like around the 4th of July or around the time of the trauma, yeah. right? Uh, so some of these guys who are Vietnam veterans, it's humid and hot, July, and they get flashbacks. And so we treat that. Yeah. Another kind of weird thing we do at the prazosin is if they have flashbacks during the day, uh, it can have a calming effect, so some people take it twice a day. Mm. Usually, a larger dose at night than during the daytime. Right. Uh, but yeah, and but we have to watch your blood pressure on this. But when, go ahead. Sorry. Let's say we start Miss Jones on prazosin. Right. After it's been chronic, we figure this out. We talk yeah. to psychiatry and psychology, and we start on prazosin. What dose do you usually find is necessary for That's efficacy, and how long does it take? So. The studies show that you know they need higher dosages up around. I think one of the one of the Raskin's first studies was nine and a half milligrams was the mean. Mm -hmm. But um, in my experience, women need less of a dose than men. And I am hmm. to avoid side effects. I take a more conservative approach on uh, adjustment. So I start unanimously. I start my women out on one milligram. This is after risk risk benefit discussion right. because this is an off label use. Yeah. Right. So. Hmm. I do that disclaimer. I tell them about risk benefit, side effects, most common lightheadedness, dizziness, headaches, maybe some uh, palpitations, but mm -hmm. pretty rare. Um, I think about less than 20% have those problems, and most people tolerate it well. And so um, we talk about that. So women, I start at one milligram. Men, I start often at two, mm -hmm. um, and I gradually increase it. So the... Um, I, I I reassess them in a month. I call them on the phone, you know, and yeah. I, I run them through the nightmare severity index. I ask about side effects. I ask, I confirm what dose they're taking. Um, and <clears throat> and then we discuss with them, okay, you're still having nightmares. Let's bump it up again. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, if they want to go a little faster, like in that first initial dosing where I give them one milligram or two milligram, the, I tell them they could double it up if they want. So I give them... 60 days worth so they don't run out you know are that's you, a big thing too are you um hmm. you doing bp checks and that type of stuff no to, or just symptomatically are you are if you, you don't have a problem with hypertension falls yeah you're walking you're walkie talkie when you come in and your overall health is generally good then like in this patient mrs jones uh, or miss jones uh then i would just go ahead with it first name sleepy 
Sleepy Jones. Sleepy Jones. Yeah. yeah. She she could you know if they I don't dis I don't say I I don't dis um I don't tell them not to check their blood pressure. Right. Uh, and, you know, but, but I guess it, what I'm asking is it, is it something that you, so you don't really follow it or you don't feel like there's any need to follow. Not if it's been a problem. Okay. But some people like to. And yeah. and this is part of that risk benefit discussion where if they're and you know the patient if they're one of the kind of type A's who get worried about stuff like this you know then fine go ahead if that makes you yeah. feel better and hmm. but i rarely have to stop it for hypotension okay and that's one of the and i tell people this because they want to know that something's well tolerated they don't they they get most nervous about another side effect especially when they're like wait it's a blood pressure yeah. medication is it originally a blood pressure medication they get really they get they they get worried about that and then but with a little more discussion you can typically get them to to get the right therapy you know and that's that's part of what i do it does have good anxiolytic effect too. I mean, yeah. in, the P- in Pete's population, they just use it sometimes as an anxiolytic, and then yeah. even in medicine, like Presidex, which is essentially the same centrally acting mm-hmm. alpha agonist, this IV form of Presidex. I didn't know that. For, yeah, same same essential mechanism. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah they use that for IV sedation and. and tubed patients, mm-hmm. right? So I had no idea. Yeah, That's... it works essentially the same. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, truth be told, I have had nightmares and I have used Prazosin yeah. and I found it gave it gave me a calming effect. Mm-hmm. But it's not habit forming. It's not addictive, right. you know, so I, I treated mine and got rid of it and mm-hmm. moved on. Mm-hmm. So also appealing in a, a patient, but a customer. <laughs> that's, that's right. I do, well. hair club. I'm also a client. <laughs> Nightmare club for. <laughs> I, I don't so. own stock in any company that I know of that makes Prazosin. You know, Barkham's version of Prazosin. GSK or I don't know who else makes it, but <laughs> only so the, available at my Amazon website. <laughs> Johnbarkham.com. Yeah. Right. Slash well, backslash links, Amazon. Links yeah, right. the, the links to my affiliate links in the system. <laughs> So the disturbing dreams and nightmare severity index questionnaire, um, do you find it to be adequate? You mentioned that sometimes nightmares can be very disturbing, but infrequent, and that can lower the score maybe falsely, causing maybe a false negative. Um, Do you think a, a new scale is needed to more effectively screen in the primary care setting? Yeah, well, I'm working on one for sleep clinic, and um, so that's good. So we got that going, and I hopefully we'll have that out in the next year. But um, it, this one here is clunky uh, because some of the questions seem repetitive and confusing. Mm. So we should probably let the viewers know. So the first question, or do you, if you guys want to read it off, yeah, I can. We can alternate. Yeah. So uh, number one, <clears throat> and this is like a Likert scale, so zero to seven. Zero to 14. Right? Yeah, it's so. a weird scale. Like, it's not zero to 10. And patients want to answer on a zero to 10 yeah, scale. Yeah, it's, so it's, it, it's a like it's a Likert, right? Yep. So, and yep. then it moves on you. It goes like <laughs> zero to seven, zero to 14, zero to four, zero to six, zero to six. Which can be confusing. Oh, it's totally confusing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so number one, is that a zero out of seven or zero to seven? How many nights per week do you have disturbing dreams or nightmares? That's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. I think that's a fair question. Mm-hmm. Seven days of the week and seven yeah, yeah. possibilities. How many disturbing dreams or nightmares do you have per week? And this is zero to 14. Yeah. So I think what they're getting you at. You can only have two per night, first of all, is yeah. what they're. <laughs> I think what they're getting at here is like, do you have recurrent nightmares yeah. throughout the night? Right. Which, okay. Like, how do you. I've had nightmares multiple times a night. Right. How do you quantify that? Do they right? cause awakenings? I guess I don't yeah. like that question. Wake after sleep I, I, on and, and 
kind of getting to your point that you said earlier, if it's really severe, then you're if you're going by like that severity score, if you have them a lot, you're you're hitting your Point number ten. for like yeah. yeah, you're hitting you know so whatever number it is, it's too much. Yeah, I, you I know, think so. <laughs> right? may... once a night. Yeah, that's too much for them. You and could they... do once a night, twice a night, or thrice right. a night, and yeah. just do one, two, three. Yeah, yeah, maybe I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Then they do ask about awakenings, and that's yeah. zero to four. Zero being never and four being always. Right. Yep. Which um, intensity. What's in between there, two and three, and sometimes kind of maybe. I mean, all right. We're not going to be. Yeah. You know what? Whoever made this, they were ahead of their time. Let's. <laughs> I'll give them that, okay? And we're sitting here beating up on them. but It's very useful. It has been useful, yeah. and, and a lot of people have benefited from this, but – you know, the next guy thinks they can always do it better, you know. And so. that's you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. I have an ego problem. Should this be a zero to ten um, progressively more unhappy face scale, like the pain scale? Maybe. <laughs> it, goes, it goes from happy to the scream from monk. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's, and they, that's, that, that's the severe But, you nightmares. know, I get feedback from people on that. They hate that, too. You know? like <laughs> Really take all the guessing out of it. Because they're like, I'm having a good day. So, I sort you know, <clears throat> anyway. So, like, and that's also hard to administer over the phone when I do a phone follow-up with people. So. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it. It's been helpful and um, talking with, um, but I'm, I don't know anyone else who uses this, period. Yeah, you're the only one I know. Yeah. Um, and I, I suspect in the private sector, it's more frequent than you're like me. Before they were screen before I was screening for it, I was overlooking it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's probably way higher than 4% in the private se- sector. I, yeah. I mean, we, I, I mean, my basic interview for Nightmare is do you have nightmares? Right. And, that's the standard. And yes or no. You know, if they're like, well, every now and then, it's like, okay. Yeah. I mean, because right. if they're not saying it bothers them. Right. And, then, you know, and, and maybe that's not right. Because well, their, their other complaints are, I'm here for severe sleep apnea and my heart's failing and yeah. I'm afraid I'm going to die. Yeah. And so they're not really too concerned about their nightmares. Right. And, but... Well, that's the thing. Like, I think people aren't concerned about them because they don't think you could treat them. Right. Right. It's like, why bother talking about it? Uh, If they've been there for decades, it's not the acute problem. They're for all these other things. But, you know, you're asking them 400 questions at one of these initial consults. You know, like you've got to move through it. Like there's a time function to what you do. And I understand that. So I'm not faulting. Especially pressed in the primary care setting. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm not faulting anyone for not doing this, uh, Mm -hmm. screening for this, because primary care is nuts. Like they're already, they're already responsible for so many things. I'm not trying to add more to the plate. Like add this questionnaire to your check-in process so you can spend another five minutes waiting. You know, that's not, I have enough trouble getting this questionnaire through at the VA. (laughs) Let alone other <laughs> clinics. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much time we have we have left. Sure, um, sure. But uh, how much? Uh, I guess anecdotally. Yeah. So you, it looks like you know pharmacologically. So a couple other things we kind of wanted to hit on. What hypothetically, other, anecdotally? Yeah. What other pharmacologically? What, what other what other medications are there out? Do they work? Do they not work? And then. Other than medications, what else do you... Yeah. Well, so that's a very good question. So anecdotally, I've had people respond to trazodone. Mm-hmm. I've had people respond to Ambien. Uh, mm. I've had people respond to nortriptyline. Um, 
so th- I, 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 I used to get a lot of patients on clonidine that were having problems or still the tra- nightmares weren't treated. And I ended up switching them off of that to prazosin. Mm. Okay. So I have not been a big cl- fan of clonidine. And that's probably due to mostly to inexperience with mm-hmm. it. Um, so I know that you can use it, but I just feel like it's not that great. And my clinical intuition is to mm-hmm. avoid it. And yeah, so I do. You had any success with Seroquel? I try to avoid that as well uh, because I feel like we're just you sedating a patient through a nightmare is an approach. I'm not saying that's wrong. (laughs) And a lot of times people who come to me on Seroquel still have the nightmares because there's a lot of other things going on. And Mm -hmm. I I know we're running out of time. What I've been experimenting with, not experimenting, that's a bad word. I read some case reports on doxazosin recently in the last year. Um, and then I read this, a study on it uh, where they looked at like 50 patients or so. Hmm. And because I was having some, a lot of these guys have prostate obstruction. And I don't, it's hit or miss whether I get to a dose on the prazosin, whether it works for their prostate obstruction or not. And so I've actually, in patients with prostate obstruction and nightmares, I've been using doxazosin more, hmm. mm-hmm. which um, at, in, at like one or milligram, like one milligram. Hmm. And it's been working. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't had to go past two milligrams. Now, I've got like a dozen patients on it, and I'm trying this out because I talked to them risk-benefit. I talked to them about off-label use. I talked to them that the studies show prazosin is what you use. Mm-hmm. But if you're in the private sector and or you're in wherever you're practicing and you've got a patient with prostate obstruction, doxazosin is the – you can use it. Yeah. And you can, it has a long half-life, whereas the prazosin only has a 68-hour half-life. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of get a better penetration, I feel like, on the – the prostate obstruction and get rid of the nightmares. That's why I'm 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 trying that out now, and I'm in the process of the last four months of following up with these guys. But hmm. I'm having good results initially. It's so interesting that clonidine doesn't have better response because it's essentially acting mm-hmm. alpha, and you know as opposed to the prazosin and the doxazosin, mm-hmm. which are peripherally. Yeah. And so you'd think that the the agents that that's more centrally acting would have a better. Response, especially for nightmares. And I had said earlier about Presidex, that's actually more like clonidine, mm. not like mm-hmm. not like uh, prazosin because it's essentially acting. Mm-hmm. Well, that means just my own inexperience yeah. with clonidine. I, when I was in primary care, because I did that for a few years, is that I, I didn't use it as an antihypertensive that much. Right, no one does The anymore. alpha blockers. It's like fourth line. Yeah, now. I just became more comfortable with over the years with prazosin and stuff. So so that's kind of why I've, I tend to it's avoid It's like QID dosing yeah. with like horrible rebound. Yeah, that's so the problem. It's like 0.1 QID, and if you don't take it, you're going to skyrocket up to like 220. Even I forget. It's a great <laughs> drug. I mean, it works. Yeah, but even great. like as a doctor, I forget to take twice a day medication. Right, no, I know. When I'm on antibiotics, <laughs> exactly. right? Like, exactly. Uh, you're going to put someone on a long-term clonidine four times a day. Uh, so if we say that, let's say sleepy uh, Miss Jones improved on prazosin. Yeah, we start at one milligram. She, her, her DDNSI scale dropped from 32 to 17. So she's headed in the right direction. Mm-hmm. However, there's a little residual symptomatology that you want to address. You do definitely refer her for something like image rehearsal therapy or you That's have where meet it gets, with a psychologist. Well, yeah, what are the other forms of non-pharmacologic therapy and what do you prefer? Well, what I have available at the VA is typically dream rescripting. Now, there's other stuff. We used to dreaming image rehearsal therapy, mm-hmm. but dream rescripting is what I have available. Where, if, And it seems to be, for if you've got recurrent content, yeah. then you can you know, rescript it. Mm-hmm. So, And it's intense. I mean, it's not like you're going to show up and 
go from being shot at in your nightmare to fishing all day. It's not like that, right? It's, they can, you have to like write out, and I'm going to screw this up. This is why we have to have Todd favorite on the show is because (laughs) you have to like write out the nightmare, talk about it, um, go through it, rewrite it, it, rescript it, practice it, read it, listen to yourself like a recording of yourself reading it. Yeah. Then you have to read it before bed and listen to it before bed. So then you have the nightmare. You're imbuing so it with a more positive you're, energy. You're, you're having the nightmare that you want, essentially. Yeah, right. Kind yeah. of, as opposed yeah. to... I've never seen... I mean, I, I know... Yeah, I know of it, but I don't really know what it is. So well, this I, is go- I, mean, I haven't done it, obviously, and I have a, I, I, I have a peripheral understanding after my discussion with Dr. Favorite, but um, the... That's the gist of it. And it's, it'd be interesting to talk about it more with a psychologist yeah. who does it. And, um, and I've read a book on it, but I, I think it came out of, uh, they, they first practice it with uh, rape survivors. Mm-hmm. And so it's been well studied, but it's a lot of work. And so if you've already failed, like a lot of my patients have, more of the traditional psychiatric approaches and psychological approaches, then... They're really not, they don't want to circle back. And so, and then it's got to be typically recurrent content, mm-hmm. right? So by the time I get through the, these questions with the patients about their nightmares, it's not a great, it's not, not many of my patients are going to go for it. And a lot of them just want to get rid of them. Right. And so they're like, let's do the prazosin. And that generally works. Um, the, that, that, that's the approach I take. And there's nuance to that too. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think uh, there's we could talk about this for a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, I have a lot more questions, and maybe we could do another session uh, sure. on this. But I think uh, we got to wrap it up here. So, uh, Dr. Barkham, John, thank you so much for being on. Until next time, uh, we'll see you next month. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for having me.